Section 14, A Pipe of Mystery, of Among Malay Pirates and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. A Pipe of Mystery by G. A. Henty. A jovial party were gathered round a blazing fire in an old grange near Warwick. The hour was getting late. The very little ones had, after dancing round the Christmas tree, enjoyed the snapdragon and playing a variety of games, gone off to bed. And the elder boys and girls now gathered round their uncle, Colonel Harley, and asked him for a story, above all, a ghost story. "'But I have never seen any ghosts,' the colonel said, laughing, "'and, moreover, I don't believe in them one bit. "'I've travelled pretty well all over the world. "'I've slept in houses said to be haunted, but nothing have I seen, "'no noises that could not be accounted for by rats or the wind have I ever heard. "'I have never—' and here he paused— "'never but once met with any circumstances or occurrence "'that could not be accounted for by the light of reason. "'And I know you prefer hearing stories of my own adventures to mere invention.' "'Yes, uncle, but what was the once, when circumstances happened that you could not explain?' "'Well, it's rather a long story,' the colonel said, "'and it's getting late.' "'Oh, no, no, uncle, it does not matter a bit how late we sit up on Christmas Eve, "'and the longer the story is, the better. "'And if you don't believe in ghosts, how can it be a story of something you could not account for by the light of nature?' "'Well, you will see when I have done,' the colonel said. "'It's rather a story of—' what the Scotch call second sight than one of ghosts. As to accounting for it, you shall form your own opinion when you have heard me to the end. I landed in India in fifty, after going through the regular drill-work, marked with a detachment up-country to join my regiment, which was stationed at Jubalpur in the very heart of India. It's become an important place since. The railroad across India passes through it, and no end of changes have taken place, but at that time it was one of the most out-of-the-way stations in India, and, I may say, one of the most pleasant. It lay high, there was capital boating on the Nabrada, and, above all, it was a grand place for sport, for it lay at the foot of the hill country, an immense district, then but little known, covered with forests and jungle, and abounding with big game of all kinds. My great friend there was a man named Simmons. He was just of my own standing. We'd come out in the same ship, had marched up the country together, and were almost like brothers. He was an old Etonian, I am an old Westminster, and we were both fond of boating, and indeed of sports of all kinds. But I'm not going to tell you of that now. The people in these hills are called Gons, a true hill tribe, that is to say Aborigines, somewhat of the Negro type. The chiefs are of mixed blood, but the people are almost black. They are supposed to accept the religion of the Hindus, but are in reality deplorably ignorant and superstitious. Their priests are a sort of compound of a Brahmin priest and a Negro fetish man, and among their principal duties is that of charming away tigers from the villages by means of incantations. There, as in other parts of India, were a few wandering fakirs who enjoyed an immense reputation for holiness and wisdom. The people would go to them from great distances for charms or predictions, and believed in their power with implicit faith. At the time when we were in Jubalpur, there was one of these fellows whose reputation altogether eclipsed that of his rivals, and nothing could be done until his permission had been asked and his blessing obtained. 
All sorts of marvellous stories were constantly coming to our ears of the unerring foresight with which he predicted the termination of diseases, both in men and animals, and so generally was he believed in that the colonel ordered that no one connected with the regiment should consult him, for these predictions very frequently brought about their own fulfilment. For those who were told that an illness would terminate fatally, lost all hope, and literally lay down to die. However, many of the stories that we heard could not be explained on these grounds, and the fakir and his doings were often talked over at mess, some of the officers scoffing at the whole business, others maintaining that some of these fakirs had, in some way or another, the power of foretelling the future, citing many well-authenticated anecdotes upon the subject. The older officers were the believers, we young fellows were the scoffers, but for the well-known fact that it's very seldom indeed that these fakers will utter any of their predictions to Europeans, some of us would have gone to him to test his powers. As it was, none of us had ever seen him. He lived in an old ruined temple in the middle of a large patch of jungle at the foot of the hills, some ten or twelve miles away. I'd been at Jubalpur about a year when I was woke up one night by a native who came in to say that at about eight o'clock a tiger had killed a man in his village and had dragged off the body. Simmons and I were constantly out after tigers, and the people in all the villages within twenty miles knew that we were always ready to pay for early information. This tiger had been doing great damage, and had carried off about thirty men, women, and children. So great was the fear of him, indeed, that the people in the neighborhood he frequented scarcely dared stir out of doors, except in parties of five or six. We had had several hunts after him, but like all man-eaters he was old and awfully crafty, and although we got several snap-shots at him, he had always managed to save his skin. In a quarter of an hour after the receipt of the message, Charlie Simmons and I were on the back of an elephant, which was our joint property. A shikari, a capital fellow, was on foot beside us, and with the native trotting on ahead as guide, we went off at the best pace of old Begum, for that was the elephant's name. The village was fifteen miles away, but we got there soon after daybreak, and were received with delight by the population. In half an hour the hunt was organized. All male population turned out as beaters, with sticks, guns, tom-toms, and other instruments for making a noise. The trail was not difficult to find. A broad path, with occasional smears of blood, showed where the tiger had dragged his victim through the long grass to a cluster of trees a couple of hundred yards from the village. We scarcely expected to find him there, but the villagers held back while we went forward with cocked rifles. We found, however, nothing but a few bones and a quantity of blood. The tiger had made off at the approach of daylight into the jungle, which was about two miles distant. We traced him easily enough, and found that he had entered a large ravine, from which several smaller ones branched off. It was an awkward place, as it was next to impossible to surround it with the number of people at our command. We posted them at last all along the upper ground, and told them to make up in noise what they wanted in numbers. At last all was ready, and we gave the signal. However, I am not telling you a hunting story, and need only say that we could neither find nor disturb him. In vain we pushed Begum through the thickest of the jungle, which clothed the sides and bottom of the ravine, while the men shouted, beat their tom-toms, and showered imprecations against the tiger himself and his ancestors up to the remotest generations. The day was tremendously hot, and after three hours' march we gave it up for a time and lay down in the shade, 
while the shikaris made a long examination of the ground all round the hillside, to be sure that the tiger had not left the ravine. They came back with the news that no traces could be discovered, and that, beyond a doubt, he was still there. A tiger will crouch up in an exceedingly small clump of grass or bush, and will sometimes almost allow himself to be trodden on before moving. However, we determined to have one more search, and if that should prove unsuccessful, to send off to Jubalpur for some more of the men to come out with elephants, while we kept up a circle of fires and of noises of all descriptions, so as to keep him a prisoner until the arrival of the reinforcements. Our next search was no more successful than our first had been, and having, as we imagined, examined every clump and crevice in which he could have been concealed, we had just reached the upper end of the ravine when we heard a tremendous roar, followed by a perfect babble of yells and screams from the natives. The outburst came from the mouth of the ravine, and we felt at once that he had escaped. We hurried back to find, as we had expected, that the tiger was gone. He had burst out suddenly from his hiding-place, had seized a native, torn him horribly, and had made across the open plain. Now this was terribly provoking, but we had nothing to do but follow him. This was easy enough, and we traced him to a detached patch of wood and jungle two miles distant. This wood was four or five hundred yards across, and the exclamations of the people at once told us that it was the one in which stood the ruined temple of the fakir of whom I had been telling him. Oh, I forgot to say that as the tiger broke out, one of the village shikaris had fired, and, he declared, wounded the tiger. It was already getting late in the afternoon, and it was hopeless to attempt to beat the jungle that night. We therefore sent off a runner with a note to the colonel, asking him to send the work elephants, and to allow a party of volunteers to march over at night, to help surround the jungle when we commenced beating it in the morning. We based our request upon the fact that the tiger was a notorious man-eater, and had been doing immense damage. We then had a talk with our shikari, sent a man off to bring provisions for the people out with us, and then sent them to work setting dry sticks and grass to make a circle of fires. We both felt much uneasiness respecting the fakir, who might be seized at any moment by the enraged tiger. The natives would not allow that there was any cause for fear, as the tiger would not dare to touch so holy a man. Our belief in the respect of the tiger for the sanctity was by no means strong, and we determined to go in and warn him of the presence of the brute in the wood. It was a mission which we could not entrust to anyone else, for no native would have entered the jungle for untold gold. So we mounted the begum again and started. The path leading towards the temple was pretty wide, and as we went along almost noiselessly, for the elephant was too well trained to tread upon fallen sticks, it was just possible we might come upon the tiger suddenly. So we kept our rifles in readiness in our hands. Presently we came in sight of the ruins. No one was at first visible, but at that very moment the fakir came out from the temple. He could not see or hear us, for we were rather behind him and still among the trees, but at once proceeded in a high voice to break into a sing-song prayer. He had not said two words before his voice was drowned in a terrific roar, and in an instant the tiger had sprung upon him, struck him to the ground, seized him as a cat would a mouse, and started off with him at a trot. The brute evidently had not detected our presence, for he came right toward us. We halted the begum, and, with our fingers on the triggers, awaited a favorable moment. He was a hundred yards from us when he struck down his victim, 
he was not more than fifty when he caught sight of us. He stopped for an instant in surprise. Charlie muttered, Both barrels, Harley, and as the beast turned to plunge into the jungle, and so showed us his side, we sent four bullets crashing into him, and he rolled over lifeless. We went up to the spot, made the begum give him a kick, to be sure that he was dead, and then got down to examine the unfortunate fakir. The tiger had seized him by the shoulder, which was terribly torn, and the bone broken. He was still perfectly conscious. We had once fired three shots, our usual signal that the tiger was dead, and in a few minutes were surrounded by the villagers, who hardly knew whether to be delighted at the death of their enemy, or to grieve over the injury to the fakir. We proposed taking the latter to our hospital at Jubalpur, but this he positively refused to listen to. However, we finally persuaded him to allow his arm to be set and the wounds dressed in the first place by our regimental surgeon, after which he could go to one of the native villages and have his arm dressed in accordance with his own notions. A litter was soon improvised, and away we went to Jubalpur, which we reached about eight in the evening. The fakir refused to enter the hospital, so we brought out a couple of trestles, laid the litter upon them, and the surgeon set his arm and dressed his wounds by torchlight, when he was lifted into a dolly, and his bearers again prepared to start for the village. Hitherto he had only spoken a few words, but he now briefly expressed his deep gratitude to Simmons and myself. We told him that we would ride over to see him shortly, and hoped to find him getting on rapidly. Another minute, and he was gone. It happened that we had three or four fellows away on leave or on staff duty, and several others laid up with fever just about this time, so that the duty fell very heavily upon the rest of us, and it was over a month before we had time to ride over to see the fakir. We had heard he was going on well, but we were surprised on reaching the village to find that he had already returned to his old abode in the jungle. However, we had made up our minds to see him, especially as we had agreed that we would endeavor to persuade him to do a prediction for us. So we turned our horses' heads toward the jungle. We found the fakir sitting on a rock in front of the temple, just where he had been seized by the tiger. He rose as we rode up. I knew that you would come to-day, sahibs, and was joyful in the thought of seeing those who had preserved my life. We're glad to see you, looking pretty strong again, though your arm is still in a sling, I said. For Simmons was not strong in Hindustani. How did you know that we were coming? I asked, when we had tied up our horses. Siva has given to his servant to know many things, the fakir said quietly. Did you know beforehand that the tiger was going to seize you? I asked. I knew that a great danger threatened, and that Siva would not let me die before my time had come. Could you see into our future? I asked. The fakir hesitated looked at me for a moment earnestly to see if I was speaking in mockery, and then said, The sahibs do not believe in the power of Siva or of his servants. They call his messengers impostors, and scoff at them when they speak of the events of the future. No, indeed, I said, my friend and I have no idea of scoffing. We had heard so many of your predictions come true, and that we are really anxious that you should tell us something of the future. The fakir nodded his head, went into the temple, and returned in a minute or two with two small pipes used by the natives for opium, and a brazier of burning charcoal. The pipes were already charged. He made signs to us to sit down, and took his place in front of us. Then he began singing in a low voice, rocking himself to and fro, 
and waving a staff which he held in his hand. Gradually his voice rose, and his gesticulations and actions became more violent. So far as I could make out, it was a prayer to Siva that he would give some glimpse of the future which might benefit the sahibs who had saved the life of the servant. Presently he darted forward, gave us each a pipe, took two pieces of red-hot charcoal from the brazier in his fingers, without seeming to know that they were warm, and placed them in the pipes. Then he recommenced his singing and gesticulations. A glance at Charlie to see if, like myself, he was ready to carry the thing through, and then I put the pipe to my lips. I felt at once that it was opium, of which I had before made experiment, but mixed with some other substance, which was, I imagine, hashish, a preparation of hemp. A few puffs, and I felt a drowsiness creeping over me. I saw, as through a mist, the fakir swaying himself backwards and forwards, his arms waving and his face distorted. Another minute, and the pipe slipped from my fingers, and I fell back insensible. How long I lay there I do not know. I woke with a strange and not unpleasant sensation, and presently became conscious that the fakir was gently pressing with a sort of shampooing action, my temples and head. When he saw that I opened my eyes, he left me and performed the same process upon Charlie. In a few minutes he rose from his stooping position, waved his hand in token of adieu, and walked slowly back into the temple. As he disappeared, I sat up. Charlie did the same. We stared at each other for a minute without speaking, and then Charlie said, oh, This is a rum go, and no mistake, old man. You're right, Charlie. My opinion is we've made fools of ourselves. Let's be off out of this. We staggered to our feet, for we both felt like drunken men, made our way to our horses, poured a mossack of water over our heads, took a drink of brandy from our flasks, and then, feeling more like ourselves, mounted and rode out of the jungle. Well, Harley, if the glimpse of futurity which I had is true, all I can say is that it was extremely unpleasant. Yes, that was just my case, Charlie. My dream, or whatever you like to call it, was about a mutiny of the men. You don't say so, Charlie. So was mine. This is monstrously strange, to say the least of it. However, you tell your story first, and I'll tell mine. It was very short, Charlie said. We were at mess, not in our present mess-room. We were dining at the fellows of some other regiment. Suddenly, without any warning, the windows were filled with a crowd of sepoys, who opened fire right and left into us. Half the fellows were shot down at once. The rest of us made a rush to our swords, just as the niggers came swarming into the room. There was a desperate fight for a moment. I remember that Subadar Piran, one of the best native officers in the regiment, by the way, made a rush at me, and I shot him through the head with a revolver. At the same moment a ball hit me, and down I went. At the moment a sepoy fell dead across me, hiding me partly from sight. The fight lasted a minute or two, then I fancy a few fellows escaped, for I heard shots outside. Then the place became quiet. In another minute I heard a crackling, and saw that the devil sits at the mess-room on fire. One of our men, who was lying close by me, got up and crawled to the window, but he was shot down the moment he showed himself. I was hesitating whether to do the same, or to lie still and be smothered, when suddenly I rolled the dead sepoy off, crawled into the anteroom half suffocated by smoke, raised the lid of a very heavy trap-door, and stumbled down some steps into a place half storehouse, half cellar, under the mess-room. How I knew about it being there, I don't know. The trap closed over my head with a bang, and that's all I remember. 
Well, Charlie, curiously enough, my dream was almost about an extraordinary escape from danger, lasting like yours only a minute or two. The first thing I remember, there seems to have been something before, but that I don't know. I was on horseback, holding a very pretty but awfully pale girl in front of me. We were pursued by a whole troop of sepoy cavalry who were firing pistol shots at us. We were not more than seventy or eighty yards in front, and they were gaining fast, just as I rode into a large deserted temple. In the centre was a huge stone figure. I jumped off my horse with the lady, and as I did so, she said, "'Blow out my brains, Edward! Don't let me fall into their hands!' Instead of answering, I hurried her round behind the idol, pushed against one of the leaves of a flower in the carving, and the stone swung back, and showed a hole just large enough to get through, with a stone staircase inside the body of the idol, made no doubt for the priest to go up and give responses through the mouth. I hurried the girl through, crept in after her, and closed the stone, just as our pursuers came clattering into the courtyard. And that's all I remember. Well, it's monstrously rum, Charlie said after a pause. Did you understand what the old fellow was singing about before he gave us the pipes? Uh, yes, I, I caught the general drift. It was an, an entreaty to Siva to give us some glimpse of futurity which might benefit us. Well, we lit our cheroots and rode for some miles at a brisk canter, without remark. When we were within a short distance of home, we reined up. I feel ever so much better, Charlie said. We've got that opium out of our heads now. How do you account for it all, Harley? Well, I account for it this way, Charlie. The opium naturally had the effect of making us both dream, and as we took similar doses of the same mixture under similar circumstances, it's scarcely extraordinary that it should have affected the same portion of the brain, and caused a certain similarity in our dreams. In all nightmares something terrible happens, or is on the point of happening, and so it was here. Not unnaturally, in both our cases, our thoughts turned to soldiers. If you remember, there was a talk at mess some little time since as to what would happen in the extremely unlikely event of the sepoys mutinying in a body. I have no doubt that was the foundation of both our dreams. It's all natural enough when we come to think it over calmly. I think, by the way, we had better agree to say nothing at all about it in the regiment. Oh, I should think not, Charlie said. We should never hear the end of it. It chaff us out of our lives. We kept our secret, and came at last to laugh over it heartily when we were together. Then the subject dropped, and by the end of a year had as much escaped our minds as any other dream would have done. Three months after the affair, the regiment was ordered down to Allahabad, and the change of place no doubt helped to erase all memory of the dream. Four years after we had left Jubalpur, we went to Virapur. The time is very marked in my memory, because the very week we arrived there, your aunt, then Miss Gardner, came out from England to her father, our colonel. The instant I saw her, I was impressed with the idea that I knew her intimately. I recollected her face, her figure, and the very tone of her voice. But wherever I had met her, I could not conceive. Upon the occasion of my first introduction to her, I could not help telling her that I was convinced that we had met, and asking her if she did not remember it. No, she did not remember, but very likely she might have done so, and she suggested the names of several people at whose houses we might have met. I did not know any of them. Presently she asked how long I had been out in India. Six years, I said. 
"'And how old, Mr. Harley,' she said, "'do you take me to be?' I saw in one instant my stupidity, and was stammering out an apology when she went on. "'I am very little over eighteen, Mr. Harley, although I evidently look ever so many years older. But Papa can certify to my age. So I was only twelve when you left England.' I tried in vain to clear matters up. Your aunt would insist that I took her to be forty, and the fun that my blunder made rather drew us together, and gave me a start over the other fellows at the station, half of whom fell straightway in love with her. Some months went on, and when the mutiny broke out we were engaged to be married. It's a proof of how completely the opium dreams had passed out of the minds of both Simmons and myself, that even when rumours of general dissatisfaction among the sepoys began to be current, they never once recurred to us and even when the news of the actual mutiny reached us we were just as confident as were the others of the fidelity of our own regiment it was the old story foolish confidence and black treachery as at very many other stations the mutiny broke out when we were at mess our regiment was dining with the thirty-fourth bengalis suddenly just as dinner was over the window was opened and a tremendous fire poured in four or five men fell dead at once and the poor colonel who was next to me was shot right through the head Everyone rushed to his sword and drew his pistol, for we had been ordered to carry pistols as part of our uniform. I was next to Charlie Simmons, as the sepoys of both regiments, headed by Subadar Peran, poured in at the windows. "'I have it now,' Charlie said. "'It's the scene I dreamed.' As he spoke, he fired his revolver at the Subadar, who fell dead in his tracks. A sepoy close by leveled his musket and fired. Charlie fell, and the fellow rushed forward to bayonet him. As he did so, I sent a bullet through his head, and he fell across Charlie. It was a wild fight for a minute or two, and then a few of us made a sudden rush together, cut our way through the mutineers, and darted through an open window onto the parade. There were shouts, shots, and screams from the officers' bungalow, and in several places flames were already rising. What became of the other men I knew not. I made as hard as I could tear for the colonel's bungalow. Suddenly I came upon a sowar sitting on his horse, watching the rising flames. Before he saw me, I was on him, and ran him through. I leapt on his horse, and galloped down to Gardner's compound. I saw lots of sepoys in and around the bungalow, all engaged in looting. I dashed into the compound. "'May! May!' I shouted. "'Where are you?' I had scarcely spoken before a dark figure rushed out of a clump of bushes close by with a scream of delight. In an instant she was on the horse before me, and, shooting down a couple of fellows who made a rush at my reins, I dashed out again. Stray shots were fired after us, but fortunately the sepoys were all busy looting. Most of them had laid down their muskets, and no one really took up the pursuit. I turned off from the parade ground, dashed down between the hedges of two compounds, and in another minute we were in the open country. Fortunately the cavalry were all down looting their own lines, or we must have been overtaken at once. May happily had fainted as I lifted her onto my horse, happily because the fearful screams that we heard from the various bungalows almost drove me mad, and would probably have killed her, for the poor ladies were all her intimate friends. I rode on for some hours till I felt quite safe from any immediate pursuit, and then we halted in the shelter of a clump of trees. By this time I'd heard May's story. She'd felt uneasy at being alone, but had laughed at herself for being so, until upon her speaking to one of the servants, he had answered in a tone of gross insolence, which had astonished her. She at once guessed that there was danger, 
and the moment that she was alone caught up a large dark carriage-rug, wrapped it round her so as to conceal her white dress, and stole out into the veranda. The night was dark, and scarcely had she left the house than she heard a burst of firing across at the mess-house. She at once ran in among the bushes and crouched there, as she heard the rush of men into the room she had just left. She heard them searching for her, but they were looking for a white dress, and her dark rug saved her. What she must have suffered in the five minutes between the firing of the first shots and my arrival she only knows. May has spoken but very little since we started. I believe that she was certain that her father was dead, although I had given an evasive answer which he asked me, and her terrible sense of loss, added to the horror of that time of suspense in the garden, had completely stunned her. We waited in the tope until the afternoon, and then set out again. We had gone but a short distance when we saw a body of the rebel cavalry in pursuit. They had no doubt been scouring the country generally, and the discovery was accidental. For a short time we kept away from them, but this could not be for long, as our horse was carrying double. I made for a sort of ruin I saw at the foot of a hill half a mile away. I did so with no idea of the possibility of concealment. My intention was simply to get my back to a rock and to sell my life as daily as I could, keeping the last two barrels of the revolver for ourselves. Certainly no remembrance of my dream influenced me in any way, and in the wild whirl of excitement I had not given a second thought to Charlie Simmons' exclamation. As we rode up to the ruins only a hundred yards ahead of us, May said, "'Blow out my brains, Edward! Don't let me fall alive into their hands!' A shock of remembrance shot across me. The chase, her pale face, the words, the temple, all my dream rushed into my mind. "'We are saved!' I cried to her amazement as we rode into the courtyard, in whose centre a great figure was sitting. I leapt from the horse, snatched the mastic of water from the saddle, and then hurried me round the idol, between which and the rock behind there was but just room to get along. Not a doubt entered my mind but that I should find the spring as I had dreamed. Sure enough, there was the carving, fresh upon my memory as if I had seen it but the day before. I placed my hand on the leaflet without hesitation. A solid stone moved back. I hurried my amazed companion in and shot to the stone. I found and shot to a massive bolt, evidently placed to prevent the door being opened by accident or design when anyone was in the idol. At first it seemed quite dark, but a faint light streamed in from above. We made our way up the stairs and found that the light came through a number of small holes pierced into the upper part of the head, and through still smaller holes lower down, not much larger than a good-sized knitting needle could pass through. These holes, we afterwards found, were in the ornaments round the idol's neck. The holes enlarged inside, and enabled us to have a view all round. The mutineers were furious at our disappearance, and for hours searched about, then saying that we must be hidden somewhere, and that they would wait till we came out. They proceeded to bivouac in the courtyard of the temple. We passed four terrible days, but on the morning of the fifth a scout came in to tell the rebels that a column of British troops marching on Delhi would pass close by the temple. They therefore hastily mounted and galloped off. Three-quarters of an hour later we were safe among our own people. A fortnight afterward your aunt and I were married. It was no time for ceremony then. There were no means of sending her away, no place where she could have waited until the time for her mourning for her father was over, 
So we were married quietly by one of the chaplains of the troops, and, as your story-books say, have lived very happily ever after. And how about Mr. Simmons, uncle? Did he get safe off, too? Yes, his dream came as vividly to his mind as mine had done. He crawled to the place where he knew the trapdoor would be, and got into the cellar. Fortunately for him there were plenty of eatables there, and he lived there in concealment for a fortnight. After that he crawled out and found the mutineers had marched for Delhi. He went through a lot, but at last joined us before that city. We often talked over our dreams together, and there was no question that we owed our lives to them. Even then we did not talk much to other people about them, for there would have been a lot of talk and inquiry and questions, and you know fellows hate that sort of thing. So we held our tongues. Poor Charlie's silence was sealed a year later at Lucknow, for on the advance with Lord Clyde he was killed. And now, boys and girls, you must run off to bed. Five minutes more, and it'll be Christmas Day. So you see, Frank, that although I don't believe in ghosts, I have yet met with a circumstance which I cannot account for. It's very curious, anyhow, Uncle, and beats ghost stories into fits. I like it better, certainly, one of the girls said, for we can go to bed without being afraid of dreaming about it. Well, you must not talk any more now. Off to bed, off to bed, Colonel Harley said, or I shall get into terrible disgrace with your fathers and mothers, who have been looking very gravely at me for the last three-quarters of an hour. End of section 14, A Pipe of Mystery by G. A. Henting Recording by Mike Harris.